We're not crazy, the system is. Tune in to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Wednesdays 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on Pacifica Affiliate WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Streaming live, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for tuning in to Madness Radio. I'm your host, Will Hall. And uh, today the topic is men and trauma. And um, we're interviewing Oryx Cohen. Oryx is the co-founder with me of the Freedom Center. And he's also the co-director of the new recovery learning community in um, Western Mass based in Holyoke, which is, uh, well, he'll tell us a little bit about it, but it's a peer-run recovery center. Um, Oryx was also, in 2006, uh, he was nominated, he was a finalist for the American Association of People with Disabilities Leadership Award. So uh, thanks for joining us today, Oryx Cohen. It's great to be here, Will. (laughs) I'm I'm laughing because you're actually, we're doing this interview over the phone but Oryx is actually in an office uh, two doors down, <laughs> and don't ask why. It's just a technical technical problem. I didn't have the right microphone <laughs> for this interview. <laughs> but um, yeah, so um, I know you've done a lot of work around men and trauma. You've given workshops and research, and um, and but I also know that you're a survivor yourself and have been in the mental health system, and maybe you can just start us off by kind of talking about men and trauma in the context of what brought you to this and why you're interested. Well, maybe the best way to start is with a definition of trauma. And um, we, we're going to define trauma here in a, in a broader way. Um, a lot of times in, this, in the trauma movement, it's defined solely as uh, childhood sexual abuse and or physical abuse, um, we're going to include a broader definition which encompasses um, all types of violence in people's lives that happen. And that would include um, in the war or wars, um, it would include witnessing a violent act, murder or um, whatnot, um, or a national trauma like 9-11, um, would be included in that in that definition of, of what trauma is. So in that respect, um, we are all uh, trauma survivors, and we all experience trauma, and it's a part of our lives. Um, and that's in no way to um, kind of discount the kind of the, the uh, horrendous impact that um, childhood sexual and physical abuse. Can have on folks because that is can be can be experiences very very different and, and and even more more significant even though you know we don't want to kind of compare significance of trauma between people but um, everybody has their own experience with that it's an individual experience um, as is everything so anyways that's that's our, that's what we're talking about is is a broader definition of trauma to include all types of um, violence and what kinds of lives. what kinds of effects could trauma have on people well um well i can talk from um kind of i think you wanted to talk from a personal ex- experience first um and what kind of brought me into this and um for me, because I can speak for myself, and um, I think it rings true for others as well, is, um, well, we're talking about men and trauma, for one thing. And um, you know, as a man, I didn't really see a lot of the experiences that I had as a younger person um, being trauma or being traumatic. I didn't even recognize it. Um, I grew up in a uh, you know, Jewish family. Uh, for the most part, my mom is not Jewish, but I, I, my dad uh, looked after me, and I was a really happy kid overall. You know, very, very happy kid. Um, into sports, and um, you know, pretty, pretty social, pretty happy. The way that I am actually now, after I've been through a lot of crap, <laughs> but um. But yeah, so when I was a kid, um, I was really trusting of adults, um, 
that I really had no reason to not trust adults uh, until I got into high school, and um, I had played basketball all my life. I love I love basketball, and um, I came across some abusive. I didn't really realize that was the word, but uh, abusive basketball coaches, um, and they would basically ridicule me verbally um, at practice and stuff, and it made it just totally took the joy that I had. I, I would just wake up to play basketball. I would play like ten hours a day. I would play every day. I would. I would just. I just loved it. And then, you know, having these coaches basically kind of single me out and um, kind of try to ridicule me in practice as a way to try to make me better. It's kind of like an army mentality or something. Um, just kind of broke me down, and I dreaded going to practice and I started not to enjoy basketball anymore and it was it was really hard it was it was definitely I would describe it as a traumatic experience and I you know I had used to you know look forward to getting up every day and being you know I was really a happy kid and then I got in a bad space for quite a few years um and I had a you know a bad relationship mixed in with that, um, and so it, the effect on me was that I lost pretty much all of my confidence um, through that experience, um, combined with other you know other experiences. But I think that was the focal experience was having this you know I always looked up to my coaches. Uh, when I was growing up, and I looked up to adults, and here they were telling me all these things bad about myself that I um, internalized. So I don't have um, I don't have the experience with physical or sexual abuse, but I have experience with um, verbal abuse, which can be um, very damaging. And there's a, there's a recent study that uh, looked at uh, verbal abuse versus abuse. It actually showed that in a lot of cases, verbal abuse can have um, even more significant impacts than physical, because it, it's it's getting at your your brain, <laughs> your mind, your psyche, how you feel about yourself. Um, so that was really really hard. Um, and like I said, I didn't even uh, recognize that as being tra traumatic or being abuse because as a man, we're talking about men and trauma, uh, I think and we're speaking in generalities, but as a man, um, we are taught that this type of behavior is okay, that we have to toughen up, that we have to get through it, grin and bear it. Uh, we don't talk about abuse in this way. Um, so it was a while before I even recognized that I was a trauma survivor and I was doing this work and getting involved in the trauma movement that kind of gave me that, uh, realization and that was really powerful for me. Did you have lasting, did you have like lasting effects that went beyond just, you know, when that happened with the basketball coaches? I mean, did it affect you for years afterwards? Oh, it affected me for years afterwards and I think that's, um, had a lot to do with why I um, ended up going manic um, later in my life was that I had a lot of unresolved issues around this and around and around confidence and um, so the way that I handled it up until um, that point until I was about 26 the way I handled it was just to feel bad about myself and, you know, to think that I was, you know, terrible and that I, you know, was kind of worthless and that I couldn't measure up and that kind of thing. And I know, th I know this is a long, I know it's a long story, yeah. story, but maybe you could, can you tell us a little bit about the manic episode and, and how, because when we think of mania, I guess we kind of think of like this wild high energy 
kind of state. Yeah. But you, for you're saying it's connected to these really low negative feelings that you were having from yourself that were partly from the trauma that you well, experienced. Yeah. yeah, I think um, I think all of these experiences have meaning, and 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 we make meaning for ourselves, and we kind of recontextualize what happened and what society tells us is that we're sick and that they're kind of meaningless experiences. Um, but I think we can integrate these experiences into our lives. And what happened for me with, with mania and the way that I understand it now is I got into a situation in um, graduate school when I moved out here from Oregon to uh, moved from Oregon to Massachusetts and um, got into some stressful circumstances again where it would have been easy for me to kind of beat myself up and to say that I was, you know, un, you know I, I was doing something wrong and um, get into that kind of depressive state. But I think a lot of this happens on a subconscious level. On a subconscious level, I never wanted, to, at that point, I was like done with feeling that way about myself. And, um, you know, subconsciously I was, um, gonna, you know, get back at these abusers, and I was gonna show them who, who was right, and that I really did have, you know, a lot of confidence, and I really was um, assertive and and you know, a powerful person. And so, what happened when I was going through these difficult experiences after the move was, I started feeling, I just started feeling really good about myself, and. Um, it was a little bit off because it, I, you know, I didn't. I think any time you go through a manic experience, there's something a little bit off about it. Um, if, and especially if you don't have some guidance going through it. But I, you know, didn't sleep for a while, um, for a few days. But it was, for the most part, it was at least at the start. It was a really beautiful experience where I started really believing in myself. And I started believing in the beauty of the world and seeing how everything was connected. And um, it just blew me away. And I just kind of fell in love with that feeling and I wanted more of it. And it kind of just like overtook me, um, which these states can do. Anytime you get into a really deep depressive state, it can just kind of take on a life of its own and, you, and, and then you, you get stuck like in a black hole. Well, in the manic, you go the other direction where you get stuck in this beautiful spiral upwards, but it's gotta, it's gotta end somewhere. And so I kind of lost. I ended up losing touch with physical reality, and my mind just kind of just went on its own little chase, um, and you know, experienced different dimensions, and uh, which I think there's some validity to that. But um, I definitely lost touch with physical reality. And, I, and uh, to make a long story short. Um, that's how uh, I think that's related to the abuse is, is my basically trying to subconsciously compensate for that, not wanting to feel depressed ever again, <laughs> that depressed ever again, and going in the opposite direction. And I think for, for myself it was a huge um, turning point for me, actually. Even though the doctors were calling me sick and calling me bipolar, I thought that for my personal growth, it was it was a great ex um, experience because I was finally, I was being assertive and I was saying no, I'm not going to let people bring me down, and that I do have some self worth. So it got a little overblown, but um, and exaggerated, but it, I think overall it was a worthwhile experience. Well, that, so it raises so many different questions. I mean, there's. There's this whole question of like of mania. It seems like what gets called mania is often like it's people running away from something, and there's a there's a painful, frightened, yeah. wounded core there, and then you kind of like create this giant ex expanded state as a way of getting away from that. And then there's the other thing that you brought up, which is spirituality, and your belief that some of the the experiences and the things that you saw and felt and were inside yeah. of in those states have validity. And I'm just wondering, what do you yeah. think about that in terms of trauma? Maybe we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. But so far, we've sort of described trauma as being a real negative thing. It's like this violence that happens to you. It's abuse. It's 
verbal abuse or physical abuse, sexual abuse. But what what about this mysterious kind of connection with uh, with spirituality? I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but I'm just curious about what you think about that. Yeah, I think it's. Um, I don't know. I think it's. I don't quite understand it. <laughs> um, I don't know why it takes something kind of so bad or so that we feel is kind of evil to open up these gates to something beautiful or something that's, you know, has a real deeper meaning and spiritual meaning. Um, is that a common? Takes, Go ahead. It seems, it seems to be pretty common. Um, seems to be pretty common, and maybe it, it just, uh, you know, it doesn't have, to, and it, it doesn't, it's by no, no way a justification for some of these terrible things that happen to people. It's not a justification at all. Um, but I think um, that sometimes a traumatic event can kind of spark this awakening to to something deeper than than just kind of everyday blah you know conformist experience um, and you know there's but there are I think there's ways to, to do this um, more thoughtfully <laughs> rather than you know causing so much pain in people's lives there's there's definitely ways to do it more thoughtfully you know, a trauma to the body um, is, for example, is to starve yourself or to, to not drink water or to, or to deprive yourself of sleep. That's a trauma to the body. Um, and at the same time, that's a, lot of, that's a way that a lot of shamanistic cultures, Native American cultures, um, do that purposefully for a vision quest. And they have a guide and they, they attribute real meaning to those experiences, and I think that's what was happening to me was I was going through a vision quest, but I wasn't guided, and the trauma wasn't kind of voluntarily um, received. <laughs> um, so in that case, you know, people use, and I've used those experiences to kind of define my life. You use, you lose, you use the, the the visions that you have and the experiences that you have while you're in that state, and they have real deep meaning, and they define kind of who you are as a person. Yeah, because your whole, so, um, your whole, your whole life has kind of been shaped by that, and now yeah, your whole identity, yeah, and and it, your career and your work is all about that, that experience. Exactly. Right? It helped me find my path um, and, what, and where it feels, it feels right and it feels good to um, be doing the work that I'm doing. It's like being, it's like an an initiation into who you are, like an initiation into being a shaman or a healer or a spiritual practitioner often comes through, through trauma in different cultures. Yeah. Um, But unfortunately for a lot of people in our, in our culture, I mean, it's very common to have these experiences even without, you know, even without significant trauma. I mean, it could be it could be a move, or it could be something that sparks this awakening, or it could be just a realization about how sick the world is, and with all the wars going on, and the inequality of wealth, and the destruction of our environment. That is very common for people, you know, 15 to 25, to start having these experiences, and then what happens is they get trapped. <laughs> a lot of them do get trapped in our psychiatric system where they're told that they're sick and then there are loads of meds and sometimes that's like it can it can stall someone's life development for years and years and maybe their whole life you know they become this over medicated um, mental patient and we have that happens over and over and over again and our society allows it to happen um, so what are what are some of the sort of bring it back to the the focus of what we're trying to talk about is what about what are some of the things that men in particular face in the whole context of dealing with with trauma like do you think it was harder for Um, you to do you think it was harder for you to recover as a man going through that i think men men and trauma there's a few i think general issues and again these are generalities 
but um, one thing is that we don't recognize trauma. We don't recognize that it is for what it is. Uh, I think it's, you know, life or, um, or that we should be tough and not even, it shouldn't affect us. You know, we shouldn't cry. Uh, we shouldn't react to violence. Um, it, you know, it, we, sh- we, we need to have this exterior. So then what happens is that we're not in touch with our bodies. We're not in touch with, you know, the physical sensations that, that our life experience uh, causes us to have. Um, and so a lot of us aren't, aren't as sensitive to that kind of thing. Um, and then when we are sensitive, like I think you and me and, and others are, then we're kind of made fun of for that. You know, there's teasing that goes on if you're more a sensitive man, um, which doesn't help the situation any. <laughs> um, as far as, like, little kind of factoids um, for men and trauma, uh, men are more likely to be the victims of um, physical violence than um, sexual abuse. Uh, although it does happen with men to be, you know, victims of sexual abuse, but um, far more likely to be victims of physical violence. Um, so, I actually have a little story um, about a friend of mine who doesn't really recognize he's a he's a trauma survivor, and it's, I think it's typical for a lot of men. He's a firefighter. And so he gets called out to all kinds of scenes. And, you know, just this one day he told me about this, this scene he went to, a motorcycle accident, and it was it was just awful. I'm not going to get into the details. But the way he talked about it, it was just so distant from it. It was just... And, I don't know, I think that that distance is part of the problem, that we're not in touch, you know, some of us, some of us men aren't as in touch with our emotions or don't allow ourselves to be, that I think it can be an issue. Um, I think there's maybe some positive points about it, too, that, you know, kind of just get through it and go on and go on with life. But I think that there's something missing there, too. Um, yeah, so those those are a few of the major um, things to think about with men in trauma. Um, there's also not as many groups available for men, uh, which I think is a real problem um, because so often men are are looked at as the perpetrators of of violence that we don't get together in groups um, as much as as women do and process uh, these things. Uh, When I did my workshop, I've done a a couple of workshops, but I did one that was pretty specifically for men at, at a NARPA. That's the National Association for Rights Protection and Advocacy Conference in Hartford, Connecticut, a couple of years back. And there was a room full of men. And they were just starving this conversation about men and trauma. And they were the stories that they were telling were just so powerful. And they were opening, you know, just opening up. And it was, it was such a need for that. Um, does that answer your question? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly a big topic, and it begins to. What are what are some of the ways that people? I mean, in your view, like people would would um, heal from trauma. About healing from trauma? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, you have a nice a nice handout on that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Um, well, I think a lot, like a lot of other things in this recovery movement that we're, we're having, our healing movement, our wellness movement, that a lot of it is individualized. Um, you know, there are some specific trauma um, things that you can do. You, know, you can go to, go to a therapist. You can try the, the rapid eye movement, desensitization or whatever, um, and that... Works for some, but it doesn't work for everybody. It can be harmful to some people. 
Um, I think getting together in groups is really powerful and peer support. Uh, there's some models that are being started, that are being developed. Uh, one is called M MTREM, which stands for Men Trauma Empowerment Model. Um, and that information can be found on a handy-dandy website, which is... Um, www.communityconnectionsdc.org. That's DC as in District of Columbia. Communityconnectionsdc.org uh, in their publication section. That's a whole um, manual that's been being used for groups um, uh, around men and trauma specifically. It's called the Men's Trauma Recovery and Empowerment Model, MTREM, um, helped develop by... Um, Roger Fallett, uh, who is is um, a doctor who is very um, doing a lot of great work in this area. Um, there's another model called the Atrium model, which was developed by Dusty Miller, which stands for addictions, trauma, and recovery, uh, and then a bunch of other things. <laughs> but it's a, it's another trauma model that can be used in groups. Um, so you might want to just look up um, Atrium, A-T-R-I-U-M, and uh, Google Dusty Miller um, to, to get more information about that. Those are some kind of trauma-specific um, groups that can be done. But uh, I think peer support is just huge, just knowing that other men have been through been through this. And, you know, healing usually happens very gradually. And um, first, you know, becomes comes the recognition that that uh, you that you are a trauma survivor, um, and then that's you know, and that you're not. It's not your fault. It's not you're not responsible, um, and that um, you can do. You know, there's a menu, just a menu of things that you can do. You know, yoga works for some people. Meditation can work for some people. Acupuncture grounding techniques that help get us back into our bodies and feeling grounded because we tend to dissociate when something reminds us of the trauma or triggers the trauma. So grounding exercises can be very, very helpful or focusing exercises. Um, so all of these things can, can help working on diet and nutrition and exercise and, you know, having friends uh, basically develop, starting to, to understand what healthy relationships are about because a lot of us trauma survivors are used to destructive, terrible relationships and we don't know what, we don't know what a healthy relationship is. Some of us don't know what, you know, feeling happy is about. Um, so we kind of have to learn how to, how to, how to do these, these new things. Do you um, so. do you think that there's any any danger of kind of adopting a trauma survivor identity and having that be confining or limiting you and sort of start to see yourself in the victim role and is there sort of a downside to this as well? Yeah, I think I think there is. Um, I think there is a downside. Um, it, may, it brings in a big question of how do we define ourselves in this movement, especially, you know, the consumer survivor ex-patient movement, how do we define ourselves? And I think it's a great alternative to mental, being mentally ill, quote-unquote mentally ill, and sick and, and being trapped in the medical model. That is something inside you that you're kind of defective brain chemistry. chemistry. So I think as an alternative to that model, which, you know, I think is very harmful, the biological model very harmful is very harmful. So, um, as an alternative to that, the trauma model is is great. And I think, unfortunately, we live in a society where we have to have like models and people, you know, I, you know, these kind of frameworks that people can wrap their heads around. And I think the trauma model is much, much better in terms of saying, hey, well, most of us actually, you know, fifty to seventy percent, you know kind of um, conservatively are, are survivors of childhood trauma um, in terms of physical or sexual abuse. Um, 
then so let's just assume basically that we've gone through some type of trauma and it's not you know it's not a chemical imbalance there or maybe there is there's some biological things happening you know that uh, our brains have been changed because but it's not because just that's not the answer right there it's because something else happened something else powerful happened to cause that change um, and so in that respect I think it's a lot more helpful um, because you can kind of recover from that you can heal from that that trauma um, but I think it is limiting because a lot of people don't identify themselves as trauma survivors. They say, hey, well, you know, it wasn't trauma for me. It was, you know, I'm just, I'm just who I am, and this is who I am, and this, and this was, this is a valuable experience. It's, it's labeled a certain way by other people in society, but um, this, is, or this was a spiritual uh, awakening that happened for me. Um, it doesn't really have anything to do with trauma. So I think that if we limit ourselves to one model, it can be dangerous because then we exclude people. Uh, it makes the discussion a little more complicated and you can't talk in sound bites, um, which is why a lot of people don't get it. <laughs> but being a human is, is not a sound bite. So it's, a lot of this is about being human and we're complicated beings. So we can't be like... Um, kind of uh, pigeonholed into a, si a soundbite. What are some of the other things that you talk about in your, um, in your workshop? The other things that I talk about in the workshop? Um, well, I like to give people uh, basic, some basic statistics, which I've done here on... Um, kind of how prevalent trauma is. Um, and then um, talk about some of the differences that happen with men uh, as opposed to women, which I've mentioned some of those as well. And then one thing that I haven't really got into is um, how the system itself can be re-traumatizing to people. Um, and what it means to be uh, trauma-informed. Um, because so many of us go back into the, go into the mental health system for help only to be basically re-traumatized by the system um, through, whether it's through forced drugging um, or isolation, seclusion, um, electroshock, uh, you know, and then basically told that this is good for us, even if we don't want it. Um, some people, you know, choose to do that for themselves, um, to, to take psychiatric drugs or to do any number of things. They choose that for themselves, but so often it's forced upon us or we're coerced and not given any other alternatives. Um, and so that's a form of of trauma again because it reenacts a lot of times what happened in the abusive relationship where you had no control you, lo you lost all control and you were told that this was good for you when you felt inside that it was bad for you so again and then now you're told you're crazy if you don't believe this is good for you so it's a really kind of a messed up web that you get stuck in um, a lot of times in the system um, so talk about yeah, talk about re-traumatization. So just um, uh, just to interrupt for a second. If you're if you're yeah. just tuning in, this is um, Madness Radio, and we are talking with Oryx Cohen about men and trauma. Oryx is the co-founder of the Freedom Center and the co-director of the new recovering learning recovery learning community in Western Massachusetts. So other other things in your in your workshop? Uh, yeah. Well, we. I think we're starting, the buzzword of trauma-informed is starting to get out there. Um, but a lot of people don't really know what it means. So they say that they're trauma-informed when they're really not. Um, it's kind of like a buzzword of recovery. 
now um, where uh, a lot of systems and providers are starting to talk recovery but not really understand what it is. Um, but so I um, help uh, people and I've done this for providers too um, to um, begin to think about what are some real practical things you can do either individually or in an organization to um, to become trauma informed and I can just I can list a few things yeah that absolutely would yeah be helpful um, well something one thing is to develop a policy statement um, that refers to the importance of trauma and the need to account for um, person's lived experience with trauma in service delivery if you're an organization. So to have a, a statement um, that's, you know, not tucked away in some some uh, binder somewhere, but, like, it's 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 something that you the organization basically lives by and shows the community, hey, this this is our statement about trauma. We understand how prevalent it is, um, and we understand the importance of it, and we we uh, are working to become trauma informed. We're, we're we're working to become more trauma informed because I think we're always working. We can always do more in this area. Whenever say, hey, I'm totally trauma informed. It's a very com- complicated issue, and um, so we can always work to be better. Uh, so other things, uh, working together with an advisory group in the organization that um, is specifically designated toward this issue of trauma, um, which basically provides advice to the organization and make sure, making sure that you're on the right track. Um, another thing that an indicator of being trauma informed is that um, you, you basically walk in with the assumption that people in substance abuse, people in mental health that are coming to you are trauma survivors in some form. So um, it's not that you have to, you know, necessarily focus on that issue, but um, for example, in a situation where someone is um, getting very agitated or freaked out because of um, something going on in the agency, a lot of times people will just say, oh, man, this person's borderline or this person's like, you know, it's start diagnosing right away when it could be something very simple that's trauma-related. It could be um, that it could be the lighting, it could be the way the room is set up, um, and these are the types of questions that you need to start asking people. Um, it could be because they're sitting with the back to the door doorway, um, which is not a good practice. Hang on a second. Um, Hang on yeah. a second. La 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 la. <laughs> Can you? Uh, roll. Yeah, just no, just back up and repeat it. That's good. Okay. Where did, where where did you lose me? I I just when the plane started. So. Oh, when the plane started. Okay, mm-hmm. so I was talking about um. Yeah, if um a client or someone you serve is coming in and they're they're kind of reacting very strongly to something and, and behave, you know shouting or getting very defensive a lot of times it's so quick to label but you know borderline or um or they're having a psychosis or whatever it is rather than assuming that this may be something may have triggered a traumatic you know something from a trauma experience and to ask you know basically ask questions to be with people you know Sometimes it can even it, it gets pretty subtle because it can be the presentation. If you're presenting as an authority and a clinician, and you know what's best for the person, that can be triggering and freak totally freak people out. So it takes it takes a lot of training. So that's another thing that that organizations can do is that you're willing to attend trauma training and learn kind of a different way of interacting with people. 
um, where it's more asking questions and it's more, um, you know, assuming that they're the expert. People are the expert on themselves. Um, and it could be um, simple things within the environment, um, like I had mentioned earlier, the, the lighting um, or how the room is set up or if people are sitting with their back to a door, which is, is, can be a, a bad thing for trauma survivors. Um, and other indicators that an organization is um, trauma-informed is that administrators make basic resources available in support of uh, trauma-informed service modifications like I was talking about. So they're willing to notice changes need to be made to the environment and spend the money on that, get the correct lighting, um, make the place feng shui, make it inviting. Um, so that it doesn't just look like another institutional, like mental exactly. health agency or hospital. Exactly. Or yeah. Exactly. Like what we're trying to do here at the RLC. You know, we're 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 trying to be as trauma informed as we can be, um, and um, so uh, maybe it's a good time to talk about what I'm doing now a little bit. Yeah, that sounds great. So, what's this RLC thing all about? Well, it's called the Recovery Learning Community. And it's based on years of activism from the consumer survivor ex-patient movement to get some peer-run services funded by the state. Um, and we're actually victorious in that. And this is the first year that we've had this recovery learning community in, in uh, Massachusetts. It's in three different areas. We have one in Western Mass, that, and I'm a co-director with Sarah Davidow of this um, recovery learning community. And we're here today actually doing this interview. Will is in our computer lab. In our, we have a resource center. It's a beautiful computer lab with a view of a park um, and all kinds of cool programs on the computers there as a resource for people. Um, it's all peer. It's all peer-run. Um, the focus is on recovery and wellness, um, we, and that's defined by the person, again. Um, we have a library at the center with all kinds of awesome books and magazines on recovery from a, a variety of perspectives, not only recovery, trauma, um, and uh, substance, substance use, um, and some fun books and videos, just because we need to relax and not think about this all the time <laughs> and have fun. Um, and then we have we're having groups, we're, we're having activities here, yoga, um, having an uh, art group, um, doing a collage. Soul, it's called Soul Collage. It's going to be happening here. We're going to uh, we're planning on having a hearing voices group support group for people to have a peer group to talk about the um, experiences they're having. Um, we want to have other peer support groups. We're going to have a movie night. And we're basically a network of all the peer-run organizations in Western Mass, um, which there aren't a whole lot of. Um, the Freedom Center is probably the biggest and the most well-known and the most effective um, in Western Mass. But Freedom Center is a big part of the network, and there's other groups such as the Anchor House of Artists and the Women's Centers in Franklin County that are involved. Uh, so our job is to help support what's already going on and to find what's needed and to plug in where we can. And it's been really exciting so far, even though we're so so brand new. Yeah, what I, what, I really, what I really like about it is just the atmosphere coming into the um, the office. It's not a bureaucratic office, institutional professionals. There are no bosses hanging around. There's no managers. There's yeah. no like hierarchies. It's really a collaborative thing. I mean, there are co-directors and there is staff, but it's a much more egalitarian and humane community yeah. kind of environment than you'll find yeah. at pretty much any other mental health agency. I mean, probably in the state, probably. I mean, it's, it's a pretty yeah. unique yeah. kind of vibe. It's, I don't even, I don't even think you could call it a mental health agency. It's really part of it. It's a movement. No, it's a community it's, it's, center and it's a movement here that's, that's happening. That's, 
Yeah, the the word community is really intentional. Is that we're trying to to, to build community, and um, in the way we set up the space, we're trying to be as trauma informed as we can be, um, and make it more of a home like environment. So we have beautiful couches. Uh, we have you know wonderful artwork that's up. Um, our decorator uh, Janice Sorensen just did a fabulous job with it um then we have kind of an open space where people can just hang out uh you know with the refrigerator and eat and talk and it's um, really it's really casual yeah i know that the um the western mass department of mental health office where where they have run i mean i know they have a consumer consumer survivor ex-patient affairs office and they have programs yeah for well, actually, they don't have that anymore. I don't oh, they don't. Think. Oh, it's got abolished. Okay. Well, I know that they did. Yeah. And the thing is that the entire office is in the old Northampton State Hospital building. Yeah. So I would get these. <laughs> I would get invitations to come to meetings, yeah. to come to events, and they would expect me to go into a building that has bars on the windows. <laughs> that is, um, yeah. and then I'm supposed to act like this is just normal. And of course, if I'm yeah. going to say anything about it. Oh, you're being too sensitive or you're being too political or that's really dogmatic. But no, actually it's yeah. real. Institutional violence is real. is real and the memories are real. And so Oryx is, you're talking a lot about the environments that we're in and being aware of things like lighting and, and, but this is, this is really a big part of what um, being a psychiat- psychiatric survivor is about is having those memories of that institutional confinement constantly haunting you. And if you want to get no. services or you want to get help, you don't want to go into some place that reminds you of, of how it used to be when you were locked up. And I think that, that if, you know, people might be hesitant about the recovery learning community, but I encourage you to just, you know, come and check it out and you'll realize that this is not another, you know, pharmaceutical slash mental health system front mm-hmm. posing as recovery. This is a different, it's a different kind of thing. It's a real authentic, um, it's a real authentic effort, effort at healing and recovery. And, I think it's going to be, I mean, maybe you can tell me this, but yeah. do you think this is really going to be like a, a pioneer for the, the rest of the state and the rest of the country for the way that um, these kinds of programs ought to be created and run? I think, I hope so, yeah. I, we're really trying to do it ground up, grassroots, see what see what uh, people are missing in their lives we, and try uh, to help help do it. Yeah, um, we, we don't have a lot yeah. of time, but can you talk about the um, the guiding council? Because I think that's a really remarkable process that the yeah. recovery learning community went through to sort of to come into existence. So tell us about that. Um, yeah, the guiding council um, was formed with the help of Empower, which is our statewide consumer survivor organization, um, and. People are starving for this type of type of thing, um, and the guiding council is basically a group of consumer survivors who came together to guide this process of developing the recovery learning community. And we had, you know, probably 60 people in total be a part of it. There's 20, 25 regulars who. Um, are part of this guiding council, so it's it's an active council, and they they have sh- really shaped what we're all about. We don't we don't do anything major without um, their approval. Like they basically helped us pick this the spot where we're in now is with the uh, resource connection center. So it's helped um, us form it's run form dem- the direction. Yeah, it's run democratically and um, helped hire hiring. Uh-huh. I mean everything. And the the whole process of actually putting the contract together with the DMH was was shaped yeah. by the uh, guiding council. So it's yeah, really been exactly writing writing the proposal. <laughs> it's really been it's really been built from the ground up by people who've been through the mental health system, and I think that's really the probably the essence of um, the idea of recovering from trauma is that you you really have to get control back because you know trauma is about losing control. So as a community, as psychiatric survivors, the essence of, of healing is being able to have spaces where we have control, again, where we can say this is our space, these are our resources, this is our recovery process, this is our healing, this is our community. And that I think is really it's something that's been happening at the Freedom Center and now 
it's happening with the recovery learning community. So, um, Orcs, we don't have a, a, that much time. We're about we're about the end of the show. Yeah. And I was just wondering it's if people wanted, to, yeah, people wanted to get in touch with you and to find out more about the the RLC. How would they do that? Um, well, you can get in touch with me here at the RLC. We have an eight hundred number, eight six 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 four one two eight five three. That's eight six 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 four one two eight five three. Uh you can also email me directly if you'd like at Oryx O R Y X at Western Mass RLC dot org. That's Oryx at W E S T E R N M A S S R L C dot org. And you so guys would, are you guys are gonna yeah. have a website soon, is that right? We're gonna have a website, it's going to be same um extension, www dot westernmassrlc.org. Um, there's not much on there right now, but it's just gonna be it's just gonna be a very vibrant website in hopefully about a month. Great. Well thanks so. a lot for um coming on the show today, Orcs. All right, thank thanks, Will. been listening to madness radio voices and visions from outside mental health madness radio is broadcast every wednesday 6 to 7 p.m eastern standard time on pacifica affiliate wxojlpfm 103.3 valley free radio in northampton massachusetts for our live internet stream podcasting show archives and more visit madnessradio.net madness radio is co-produced by freedom center and the icarus project for more information, check out freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. For more mental health radio, listen to the news hour from mindfreedom.org, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, or you just want to share what's in your head, contact us at radio at madnessradio.net. <laughs>